Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them to 2 Timothy. If you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat backs in front of you. Get to page uh, 1067. Uh, you'll be, or 1057, sorry, you'll be with us. We want you to be able to follow along. And this will be the last Sunday that we open to 2 Timothy, all right? Now, I don't mean we're all going to die or anything, all right, unless the Lord wants to come back. But we are wrapping up our study in 2 Timothy today. And uh, we started in 1 Timothy back in January 2021. And so as I was reflecting on it this week, I thought, man, the Lord has done so much, but I don't think it's really sunk in. So next week we'll be back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll just go through it all again, all right? I'm kidding, obviously. I'm going to give Jeremy Anderson credit for that joke. He said we could be in Timothy until 2026 if I did that. But... Uh, we actually, next week, we're going to start um, a series called No Plan B, and, and we think our pace through 2 Timothy was just too fast, and so we're going to do seven weeks on three verses, all right? And it's going to be on the end of Matthew 28 and the Great Commission and what Jesus has commanded his church to do, and then come September, when everybody's done with their travels, we're going to, our next book study will be the book of Mark, and so uh, we're excited about that. We're ready to hear uh, from Jesus quite a bit, but we've still got to finish 2 Timothy today, and so I want to... I want to, I'm excited about that. I want to thank you for being here. Thank our guests for being here. We know it's not easy to try something new. And if, if you're here and this is your first time, please stop by our Connect desk on the way out. We have a gift for you uh, for being a part of this. And um, also, man, I, don't, I can't think of a better set to prepare us for what we're going to talk about today. So can you join me in thanking the praise team this morning for leading us in that? Like, that was, that was awesome. And, and it's going to help us a lot as we... Uh, shape our thoughts off this passage today. And so I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch into this. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, for what you uh, have already done this morning. We're grateful for what you've already done through your word, through, uh, through this lengthy study, through First uh, and Second Timothy. We're, we're thankful that your word never returns to you void, and we bank on that promise again this morning. Uh, we just ask that you continue what you've already begun in uh, our, our fellowship and connection today, what you've already begun as you inhabited the praise of your people uh, Lord, would you just continue that momentum now? Would you speak uh, through your word? Would you, um, would you have it cut sharper than a two-edged sword? Would you reveal to us what we need to know today? And, and may we respond humbly at the lead of your spirit and get the glory from all this, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, I was listening to a, a podcast recently, and the topic was uh, they were trying to figure out why there had been so many uh, well-known pastor fairs in recent years. Right? And the idea, they're just trying to ask the question, why are so many Christian leaders just kind of flaming out in these really uh, terrible ways? And that's a topic that's going to get my attention every single time, which I hope is for obvious reasons. Right? If, you're, if you're in a room uh, with a whole bunch of people and you're in a big room and a handful of them are just dropping like flies, you'd, you'd want to be like, what's happening to them? Right? You'd, you'd have curiosity. And so uh, this, this was an easy listen for me. I wanted to hear it. And on this episode, the host had invited a pastor by the name of Timothy Keller on as a guest. Because Timothy Keller is a well-known pastor. Uh, you can even use the term celebrity pastor if you want. He's served in a very large church in New York City. He's written uh, many books and had some fame. And with all of that, he has stayed faithful to the Lord. Uh, he's avoided pitfalls. He, he is, he's sort of a, a beacon of somebody who's stayed true to God through all of it. And so they wanted to bring him on and just ask him why. Like, what have you done to avoid this, right? And and they, they build up in the conversation, then they frame the question like this, because it's been a series of podcasts where they, and they're, and they're building to a thesis that Keller kind of blew up for them, right? And the question was framed like this. He said, studying these failures, we've seen that almost all these uh, ministry failures had no human accountability in place. And so do you think, Timothy Keller, that that, that, that is the key ingredient to avoiding pastor failure, to have human accountability in place? And Keller just flatly said, no, that's not it. 
As you hear the host kind of taken back because that was kind of their whole thesis. And he went on and explained his answer. He said, human accountability and having people you answer to, having someone who really knows you, all that is incredibly important. Keller said that, that there's godly wisdom in that. I encourage everyone to seek that out. But he said there's an inherent problem in relying on that alone, and it's that people aren't consistent. So you can take all this time and build this meaningful relationship, and then the Lord moves them somewhere else. Or they die. Or they change. And something happens, and then what? If you're 55 or 60, now you've got to recreate this all over again? Because if your stock is in people, they're way too variable to rely on. But, Keller said, there's one key thing that cannot be missed. One thing that he would argue, if it is in place, will guard and keep every follower of Jesus throughout their life. It's the single greatest antidote, whether you're in ministry or not, it's the single greatest antidote to making a mess of your own life. You know what he said? Well, if I told you now, you wouldn't listen to the rest of the sermon, so I'm not going to tell you now, all right? This feels like a big day. Because we are coming to a close in 2 Timothy, and we spent the last two years looking at these letters, and we've gotten to know the people involved, we've gotten to know their stories, and, and this last section of the letter is really quite an eclectic collection of verses. I, I would say the heart of the letter closed in verse 8 of chapter 4, right? The first eight verses of chapter 4, that's where, where Paul really pours out his heart to Timothy. This last part is more logistic and housekeeping. It's warning uh, about different people. It's, it's telling Timothy about people. He's like, come visit me soon, bring my cloak, those kind of things. But there's something that I, I, I've thought about a lot about Paul lately, and I, and I caught little glimpses of it in this closing section. And one thing I've thought a lot about Paul lately was his unmatched endurance. He, he talked about how he viewed himself as a drink offering that he would pour out again and again and again and again. And the question that I wondered is, did he get any of that in return? Was there ever anyone pouring into him? And I know if so, it wasn't even close to the level that he was pouring himself out. And so the question that's been burning my brain is, what was it that filled that gap for Paul? What kept him going? How did he avoid burnout? How could he come to the end of his life and say, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I've finished my race. How could he keep swinging to the very end knowing that he kept just pouring himself out there repeatedly? And do you know why I'm excited about today? Because I think we can get a glimpse of it in this passage. We can get a sense of what it was that fueled Paul. Because in the midst of these random verses, we're actually given a gift that if we take it and apply it, it will help each of us run the race that Christ has marked out for us with endurance. It will save us from fatigue. It will save us from burnout. It will save us from bitterness and failure and more if we can, if we can apply it the way Paul did. And so I'm going to invite Shelby McConaughey up to read today's passage. And uh, she's going to need our support this morning because most people, when they read Scripture reading around here, they get a couple verses, right? Shelby got 13 today, and there's about 15 names that none of you can pronounce, okay? And so she's going to come up here. Come on, Shelby. The good thing, if you know Shelby, she's not stressed about this or nervous at all, right? Um, and so, so she's going to need our support this morning. So would you please stand with her for the reading of God's Word? And don't worry, nobody knows how to pronounce them, so just go for it. Hey. I listened to about five versions of this. So, good morning. Make every effort to come to me soon, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens, Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Bring Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you, bring, when you come, bring the cloak I left in Troas with, 
carpus, as well as the scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself, because he strongly opposed our words. At my first offense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil work and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Oniferous. Erastus has remained in Corinth. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Make every effort to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Chubby. Yeah, give her give a round of applause. <laughs> Good work there. Keep, have a seat and keep your Bibles open there uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And, and she read for us verses 9 through 22. And I'm going to be honest with you. There's, at the start, it's going to feel like I'm taking a roundabout ray uh, to these verses. But there was something that the more I read them, the more the Lord impressed on me that I wanted uh, to share with you. And it's here, um, if you stick with me. Um, there's a lot of, of the long passage you read, there's a lot of names in it, and, and if, if you have read the rest of the New Testament, you know that for many of these names, we know a little bit more about them than what is mentioned here. Right, we can know a little bit more of their story, but there are some, like Pudens, uh, Linus, Claudia, they're, they're only mentioned here. We know nothing else about them other than that Paul and Timothy knew them, right? And obviously, they were all known by God, and each had their own unique impact with their lifetime gifts and the choices that they made. Um, but as fascinating as each of these individual people are, as I read through this, and we're going to get to some of these individual stories, the most important truth that kept coming to me as I read through this was, it was, should be an overwhelmingly obvious one, but it's this. It's what we're saying about this morning. It's that only God is God. Only God is God. And there's something the Bible has been crystal clear on throughout, starting all the way back at the very beginning, and that is that, that people, that human beings, are a wonderful gift from the Lord. Genesis chapter 1, uh, and it's given us the creation account, and here's what it tells us. It says, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. It's all the way back at the very beginning of the Bible, in the very first chapter, we see that, that God, in, in the creation narrative, he, he made man and woman in his image. He set them apart as the prize of his creation. He bestowed on them what is known as the Imago Dei, which is the image of God. And then he gave us dominion over creation. Psalm 139 picks up even further, and it says, For you, Lord, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, in, in the Bible, every other aspect of creation, we read that God speaks it into existence. But the picture that he paints in his own word that he's revealed to us is that while we're in the tomb, God is knitting together every unique detail about us. How tall we will be, what our hair color will be, what our eye color will be, what our personality will be, what our, all these different things about us. And it, which, which tells us that every human life is immensely valuable and sacred and wondrous. Every human life has a soul that was designed by its creator, and so it must be cherished, it must be protected, it must be honored and cared for and loved. 
And as you see the effects of sin on our worlds, it's no shock at all that the kingdom of darkness takes its aim at the Imago Dei repeatedly because it wants to strike at what God values the most, and that's always people. And so you see, from the womb to tomb, the sacredness of life is constantly belittled. The sacredness of people, how they were designed, the way the Lord designed them is, is dismissed, and this cannot take place in the church. We must be, even if we're the last bastion to do it, we must be the place that upholds the beauty of God's design. We must honor his design. We must honor the Imago Dei. It's in the diversity of creation that we see uh, God's creativity. It's in the order of creation that we see his structure for human flourishing, and we need both. We need both his creativity and his order. And part of how God's designed us is this, is that we need other people. Because back in Genesis chapter 2, even before sin entered creation, God looked at everything that he'd made, and, and all, the Bible had said up to this point, God looked at everything he made and saw that it was good. And then in chapter, chapter 2, it's the first time we hear this. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That is before sin even enters the equation. The isolation of man was not good. So from there, he created marriage, the most sacred relationship any humans can have. After Jesus rose, Jesus established his church. And in Hebrews 10, we are commanded by God to gather together as the church to form a community where, love, where we love, encourage, and spur one another on towards good deeds. And there, there's no getting around it at all in the scriptures. You need others. You need other people. And the more and more you live isolated, the more and more you live withdrawn, the worse it is for you. We need to establish the gift that humans are. We need to establish how much we need them. But all that said, you do not need others more than you need God. You do not need other people more than you need God. Now, I don't want you introverts to misunderstand and start shouting amen, which, like, introverts would never do anyways, right? You still need people. They just need to be in their rightful place. Because here's what Philippians 2 tells us. It says that as, as a follower of Jesus, we are to consider others more important than ourselves. As a follower of Jesus, we are to look out for the interests of others, not just our own interests, and that we are to adopt the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. That's the attitude that led Jesus to the cross where he died for the sake of others. Which means this, and it's obvious, but we don't like it, so we try not to think about it or talk about it. It means that if we are following what the scriptures tell us, that the net effect of human beings, the net effect of people in my life, the net effect on my emotion, my energy, my stamina, is to be negative. They're to draw out of me. Right? You need others, but they don't exist to fill you up. You need others, but they don't exist to serve you. You exist to pour yourself out for them. And we hate this. This goes against everything our culture stands for. The messaging against this is not new, but it's strong in its consistency. Even we do it in, in, in secular ways. We do it in romance stories. I remember a movie that came out in the 90s uh, called Jerry Maguire. And this was before the internet, right? And so I saw a commercial on TV, and it was, it was a movie about a sports agent. And so I was led to believe this would be a sports movie. So I went and watched Jerry Maguire thinking it was a sports movie. And the reality is that sports was as important to this movie as vegetables are to Dairy Queen. There might be a few there, but it doesn't really matter, right? That's what nobody's there for. And turns out, this is just a sappy romance story. Hugely disappointing evening for young Brett Parks, right? But one of the culminating scenes of the movie is when Tom Cruise returns to reclaim his love for a woman. He does that extra long, creepy Tom Cruise stare where he doesn't blink, right? You're like, how does he do that? And then he says to her, you complete me. 
you complete me. And at that moment, it's like you could hear the theater swoon. Oh, to have a love story like that. You know what the problem is? If that was a real couple, they'd be divorced in two years or less. Flatly. Because you know what he's saying there? He's saying, I got all kinds of issues. I'm not complete in and of myself. And to this point, we agree, Tom, right? But you, fellow human, you complete me. It's on you to fill all my gaps. It's on you to cover all my weaknesses. It's on you to fix all my mess. It's on you to repair all my baggage. It's, you're going to fix all that, which is just patently unfair. They could never do it. We are all broken. We are all a mess. We are all incomplete. And we do need others in our lives. But they're messes too. And so where is it that we turn to be filled? Second Peter chapter 1. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Listen what verse 3 says. His divine power has given us everything we need. His, it's his divine power has given us everything we need for godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. It is God who gives us everything we need. It is God and from his abundant riches that all our needs are met. It is from his fullness that we are filled. We cannot ever look to humans to do what only God can do because it will be to your ruin and theirs. And you don't even have to know his story. You just read the last section of 2 Timothy 4, and you can see how Paul's life was consumed by people. If you go down this list in chapter 4, there's, there's, there's multiple stories and multiple experiences where, where Paul has poured himself out for them. He has served them and invested in them and loved them, but he did not find his fulfillment or completion in them. Or else he would have never made it. We must let God be God. We must find our fullness in him. Only God can create us. Only God can save us. Only God can forgive us. Only God can call us and redeem us. Only God can sustain us. Only God can fill us and complete us. And to look for that anywhere else than him will lead us to ruin every single time. Only God is God. And the second thing we can see here in 2 Timothy 4 is that people can never do for us what God can. Because as, as you read through these verses, right, you, you, get a, you see a great variety here. And we don't have time for someone to break down every single story and background, but you can clearly start seeing differences between God and people. And the first thing that just jumps off the page here is just how inconsistent people are. People are incredibly inconsistent. And sometimes this is kind of wondrous and beautiful, but oftentimes it's painful. And there's a, there's a wide variety of stories that are listed here in 2 Timothy 4. There's a story of redemption. Uh, in verse 11, he mentions a man by the name Mark. Now, if you know the book of Acts, you know that Paul had been traveling with Barnabas. And in Acts 15, Paul separates from Barnabas because they have a huge fight. You know what they're fighting over? Mark. Barnabas wants to bring Mark, and Paul doesn't trust him. He doesn't think he's reliable, and he doesn't think he's useful. And they have such a big fight that they separate. And I love that at some point along the way, those two are reconciled because Paul is now trusting Mark. He's asking Timothy to bring him because he's useful to him, he says. That relationship's been restored. It's a story of redemption. There's stories of abandonment. By the time 2 Timothy was written, Nero had already made Christians a target. He'd, he'd blamed them for the fire, and so it was dangerous to identify yourself with Jesus at this time, and even more dangerous to identify yourself with one of his followers, which explains what we read in verse 16. And Paul tells Timothy in verse 16, At my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. 
See, back then they didn't have the lawyers that we have today, but it was expected at every trial that, that, that a defendant would have people stand with them and give, give credible witness uh, to their character to, to testify in their behalf. It was just understood that that would happen. And when Paul stands before the Roman authority, there's no one with him. He's completely abandoned. No one showed up. He's still alone. Then there's stories of encouragement. There, there are many names listed here that were an encouragement to Paul. He's writing to Timothy, and he, you can see, he's like, hurry, come, hurry, come, because he doesn't know how long he's going to live. He's longing to see his son in the faith. Luke is with him there now, he writes. Onesiphorus and his whole house, in chapter 1, we read how he had come and ministered to Paul while he was in prison. He mentions Priscilla and Aquila, those co-laborers in Corinth who helped uh, disciple Apollos and teach him the gospel and made tents with Paul while he was there. These people who'd made a mark on Paul's life and had been a constant source of encouragement to him. And then there's stories of opposition. Look at verse 14. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. Watch out for him yourself, Timothy, because he strongly opposed the words. It's another story we get in the book of Acts. This guy tried to kill Paul when he was in Ephesus, and he's still there. And so Paul is warning Timothy about him because Timothy is still in Ephesus. So we have redemption, we have abandonment, we have encouragement, we have opposition, and then there's desertion. In the book, in the book of Philemon, Demas is listed as one of Paul's fellow workers, during his first imprisonment in Rome, we read in Colossians 4 that Demas was there ministering to him. But, but listen to what we're told in verse 10. It says, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. At some point, he just checked out. And he left Paul in prison. Maybe he saw the suffering that Paul went through and didn't want it for himself. Maybe he was enticed by something else because Paul says he, he loved this present world too much. But either way, this desertion would have been very personal and very painful to Paul. Now, it's a long way to a short point. But do you see the wild inconsistencies in these stories? How varied the impact of others' lives all are on Paul were? And it's because people very wildly we're all inconsistent. We have good days and bad. We have good moments and bad moments. It's part of the curse of our sinful nature. We are not steady. We are not the same. We cannot be counted on day in and day out. But God, we're told of God in Hebrews 13 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In James 1, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. See, in the face of the inconsistency of human beings, we can return to the same solid rock that we have in our Savior again and again and again, and he will always be there. People are inconsistent. People are also temporary. So every person you know comes into your life for a season. Even the seasons that are longer, you might be thinking of your parents or your spouse or children. The vast majority of stories, though, they aren't there for the entire stretch of your life. Because people come into our lives for just a season. Some desert us, right? Some depart from us, and it could be good in unavoidable ways. All of us will die eventually. And so it's God and his wisdom and sovereignty that has ordained that your path cross with theirs for this season, and praise his name for that. And we can freak out about that, or we can take advantage of it. The last few summers in the Parks household has left me 
in sort of a, a personal tension because I thrive on routine and normalcy. I, I feel at most at peace and most productive when I can know that the next week's going to look like the week that came before it and the week that came after it. And there's none of that in the summer. Not a single instance of that all summer long. And with nothing being normal and weekly schedules being different every week, I just don't like it. But I love the heat. Right? I love the weather this time of year. And so I'm trying to figure out, do I like summer or do I hate it? And I haven't been able to figure it out yet, right? But that's when the thought hit me. That, and this is, by the way, this is assuming a lot that isn't guaranteed. But assuming that everything goes well and there's no tragedies, with each one of my children, I'll get 18 summers before they graduate high school. And then who knows what happens? Who knows where they go from there? And I need to remind myself of that. To embrace the everything that is not normal, to take advantage of every season that I'm in, to receive it as a gift from the Lord and give him a return on it. I'm trying to hold, to learn to hold even my family loosely, because on this earth everyone is temporary. But God? Well, God is the one who knew us before we existed. He's the one who created us. He's the one who knit us together and shaped us and formed us. He is with us every single moment. He never leaves us and never forsakes us. He carries us through the most difficult of times. He rejoices with us when it's time to rejoice. He mourns with us when it's time to mourn. He redeems us and forgives us and adopts us and will take us home to be with him forever. There's nothing temporary about God. People can never do for you what only God can do. Which is why the most important relationship in your life is your relationship with the Lord. That was Timothy Keller's answer, by the way. That the way to avoid burnout and ministry failure, the single greatest antidote to making a mess of your own life, is to have a vibrant, growing, intimate relationship with God. As he described it, it's moving beyond attending church to experiencing the Lord with his people in worship. It's beyond reading the Bible just to check off a box to meeting God in his word. It's beyond praying to get things. It's praying to relate with the Lord and deepen that relationship. We had family devotions the other week, and I was trying to make this point uh, to our older two girls, and I started by saying, you guys know Larry Bird, right? And it devastated me that our 10-year-old Gemma didn't. I was like, oh, man, I failed as a parent, Right? So then I had to tell them about Larry Bird and how he was my favorite player growing up. And I had all his basketball cards and I I collected his Wheaties boxes and his poster was on my wall. And I I memorized his stats and the years that he won championships and the MVP awards. I knew his career. I knew where he played and when he played there. And then I asked him, but did I know Larry Bird? And the girl said, no. I'm like, no, I didn't. And he definitely didn't know me. In fact, he blissfully is still unaware of my existence, right? I just knew about him. But I didn't know him. And I point this out because we can do this with God. We can learn all about him. We can go look at him at church once a week. We can read about him. We can believe in him all without ever truly knowing him. But to know him is to love him. And to love him is to obey and serve him. And you'll never be the same again. And Paul knew Jesus. He knew him well. In fact, he writes in Philippians 3 that that was the entire aim of his life, was to know Jesus more. And we can see, even in this eclectic collection of verses, we can see two things that that did for Paul, that, that, that we should want both of them. And the first is it gave him strength that he found nowhere else. Look at verse 16 again. He said, in my first defense, no one stood by me, but everyone deserted me. May it not be counted against them. And here's the contrast, verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me 
that I might fully preach the word and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I mean, think of it. After everything that Paul had done for Christians, wouldn't it have been easy to get bitter that none of them showed up? Standing against the face of the entire Roman government, would it have been easy to cow away in fear or to just sulk in depression and just be like, I have no chance here? But instead, he writes that instead of any of those things, he was actually emboldened. He was strengthened that despite the abandonment, he served the Lord passionately and a great risk himself as he, as he shared the gospel with all the Gentiles who were in the presence because his strength was not in others. It was found in the Lord. And he never forsake him or left him. The second thing we see here is that it made Paul more gracious and loving towards others. You see, the great secret of life is this. The better I know and love God, the better I am at every other relationship in my life. The better I know and love God, the better dad, husband, pastor, friend, son, neighbor, boss, coworker, mentor, protege, on and on and on. The best worshipers make the best spouses. The best worshipers make the best parents and friends. Paul even says here in verse 16 that everyone deserted me, and he goes, but don't, may it not be counted against them. He knows. He knows it would have been a great risk to themselves for them to stand with him. Even, I want you to know, even in language, in his warning of Timothy, of Demas and Alexander, you don't, you don't sense the revenge that you might pick up in some of the precatory psalms. Because with his trust and his hope and strength in God, Paul was freed up to love others, to look for the best in them, and to not be offended easily. With God filling his bucket repeatedly, Paul could pour himself out for others repeatedly, no matter what came back. Don't you want to be that type of person? Don't you want that to be you? It requires you recognizing that there is no more important relationship in your life than your relationship with God and then responding accordingly. And so if there is no more important relationship in our life than with God, then the first thing that we need to do is to be reconciled to him. You cannot be in a relationship with a God that you're an enemy of. And you might be thinking, well, I don't feel like I'm an enemy of God. Well, here's what Colossians 1 tells us. Is that once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. See, it's your sin, right? Your, your sin that, that makes you hostile towards God. It separates you and alienates you from him. But just as this passage says, God has made a way for you to be reconciled and brought back to him. And it is through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That if you believe in Jesus, God will count Jesus' death as the payment for your sins. And he will, according to this verse, God will see you as holy and faultless and blameless before him. That is, as without sin, even though you have. And by the way, there is no other way to do this. It must be through Jesus Christ. And so if you have not yet, believe in Jesus Christ before it is too late. Be reconciled to the God who created you and made a way for you to be saved. And secondly, if that's in place, and God is that important, he's done all that, then we need to give him our first and our best. If there is no relationship more lasting, if there is no relationship more life-changing, there's no relationship more permanent or more important than our relationship with God, why don't we act like it? Why are we so prone to treat it as if it's not that big a deal? Why does he so often get what's left over? after we've given all sorts of other things a higher priority. 
We all have a life that he's given us to live. We all have resources. We all have time. We all have investment. We all have pursuit and passion. And God deserves the first and best of those very things. But if he's getting what's left over, then you are stating with your actions and your decisions that he's not the most important relationship in your life, and that will only be to your detriment. If you're sitting there thinking today, that, that sounds great, Brett, but I, I'm, I'm just too busy. I'm too busy to give God the first and best of my life and time every day. What I tell you this is you're too busy not to. Because the longer that you're treating your relationship with God as if it's not of first importance, the more and more you are opening yourself up to harm. And not just you, but those around you that you love too. But you know what the best part is? That you don't have to give this importance to someone who hasn't earned it. There's no one who's been better to me than God has been to me. There's no one who's proven his love for me more than God has proved his love for me. There's no one who's done for me more than God has done for me. How cool is it that when I put him in his rightful place, somehow I'm the beneficiary of that? It's just another display of his grace towards me. And then lastly, and this is going to be harder than the other ones, I think we need to thank God for the people in our lives. We could all write a chapter like 2 Timothy 4 in which we recount the impact that people have had in our lives and it would be just as inconsistent as this chapter. It would include stories of encouragement, love, fulfillment, and joy and would include harm and abandonment and attack and pain. But you see that in all things and in every way God works for the good of those who love him, that he takes the good and the bad he takes the actions of those who are looking to help us and the actions of those who are looking to harm us, and he uses those things to shape us and form us and strengthen us and make us more like him. There are people that God has placed in your life right now who are almost a constant encouragement to you. It's good for you to thank God for those people and to let them know what they mean to you, and I encourage you to do that today. But if we're honest, there are also people that he's placed in your life to keep you humble to give you another hurdle to climb over, to make you more reliant on him and less, less believing in your own abilities. And then there are those, even worse, who sinfully act outside his will. And I'm not saying you need to thank God for that. But as Thessalonians says, you can thank God in that circumstance, that there's nothing that has ever happened to you that he will waste. Instead, he will use those things to make you more reliant on him and closer to him. And one day, you may be even able to even say, as Joseph did to his brothers, you meant that for my harm, but God meant it for my good. You see, though the net effect on your life is to be a minus, people remain a wonderful gift from God. Yes, some of them are easier to recognize as a gift than others. But when we take care of the most important relationship in our lives, then we start to value what God values. What will be important to us is what is important to God, and that is and always will be people. And so ask the Lord to make you more like Paul, where you are so filled by the Lord's goodness that you can keep pouring yourself out again and again and again, regardless of what comes back. And may God create in us a church of people who so passionately pursue him, who are so filled by him that we can repeatedly, daily pour ourselves out for the good of those whose paths we've crossed, all for the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the close of this letter. 
I'm thankful that for the man who just a couple of verses before stated with a clean conscience that he had fought the good fight, that he had finished his race, he kept the faith, we could see in the very next group of verses that it wasn't people who got him there. It wasn't because the humans in his life never let him down. It wasn't because they were a consistent source of encouragement. It wasn't because they booed him up. It was all because of you, Lord. His strength, his identity, his purpose, his hope, his faith was in you. So, Lord, help us to be a church that has that. If there's anybody here who has not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and they stand opposed to you today, they came into this place as your enemy, guilty of their sin, and headed towards the eternal punishment of hell for those sins. But Lord, you sent your son Jesus to the cross to pay their price. Would you draw them to yourself now? Would, you, would they surrender and believe in you? And would you save their souls this moment? And Lord, for the rest of us who, who you've done that for, may we realize that you've not put others in our lives for our benefit. You've not put others in our lives so they can fill us up. You've put them in our lives so that we can serve them. And the only way that works, the only way we can accomplish that is by finding our fulfillment in you. It's by finding our abiding strength in you, by finding our encouragement in you, by finding our hope in you and you alone because only you can do what you can do. And so if there are humans that we are finding too much of our identity in, let us repent of that today. If there are people that we're not forgiving because we think they owed us more, let us forgive and let go of that today. If there are areas of our lives that we just haven't surrendered to you, that we are chasing other things, lesser things than you, may we surrender those today. May you be the rightfully most important relationship in our lives. Would you do this for our sake? but most importantly for the sake of the people that you've given us to love and serve. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. We're going to end this service with a time of response where you can just spend some time uh, reflecting with the Lord, praying to him, uh, wrestling with some things that he put on your heart. Grace is going to sing us a song during that time, but this is just your moment to, to spend with him, to invest in the most important relationship of your life. So please do not miss it. Do not waste it. Take advantage of it.